Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our new weekly Soul of the Parsha class. Our topic for today is a feminine Torah. Is there such a thing as a feminine Torah? Does the Torah have a masculine and feminine aspects to it? What does that mean about men and women? Uh, how can both of them relate to both masculine and feminine aspects of the Torah? What exactly is the definition of a feminine Torah? And what does it tell us about the times we're living in? So these are the questions that we want to uh, open our new class with. Uh, we, of course, are now in the weekly portion of Yitro. Yitro, or Jethro, is Moshe's father-in-law, and he merited to have this very, very special parsha named after him. This, of course, is the parsha of the giving of the Torah. We have got, uh, come out of Egypt in the previous parsha, and we have been through many things, and now, after battling with the people of Amalek, we have arrived, in the beginning of this parsha, we are arriving at the foothills of Mount Sinai. And the main topic of the parsha is the, the, the great momentous historical event of the giving of the Torah, which is really God's unique one-time revelation in the form of speech, in the form of writing a book that he gives us the Ten Commandments, and they are in the, in the middle of this parsha, in the heart of this parsha. And, and Moses comes up to Mount Sinai, where he's going to spend 40 days and nights and, and writing the Torah. However, in this year, we're focusing on just the first segment of the parsha, the opening of the parsha. And here, we're just talking about the Jewish people, the, the Israelites, arriving at the foothills of Mount Sinai. This is, this is just the introduction, it's the preparation, it's getting ready. And one of the things we get here is at the very third verse, uh, it says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, and this is the first thing God says, when the people of Israel, the sons of Israel, are arriving at Mount Sinai, he says to him, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and speak to the children of Israel. Now, this is the verse we want to focus on today. And we have two uh, idioms here, two terms of speaking. It's the first, and both of them make up just three words, but each word here is very, very uh, valuable and very important. So, again, it starts, the, the first idiom, the first phrase, is Tomar Levet Yaakov, you shall say to the house of Jacob. And the second is, you shall speak to the children or the sons of Israel. Tagid Levnei Israel. There are three differences between these two phrases. The first is that uh, we're, we're using two verbs, two different Hebrew verbs for speaking. Saying and speaking, Amira and Haggadah. And they are, you would think they're interchangeable, but of course there's no really such thing as interchangeable words in Hebrew. Each word is very, very carefully selected. And we need to understand what the difference is between saying and speaking, Amira and Haggadah. Second difference is that we're talking to the house of Jacob versus the sons of Israel. So we're referring to the two names of uh, Jacob, the third father, the third patriarch. Jacob, he was born Jacob, but then he was given the name Israel. And the third difference is that we're talking to the house of Jacob, versus the sons or children of Israel. So, three differences. Each phrase is three words, and they parallel one another. It's speaking, saying, and it's house, children, and it's Jacob, Israel. And so, there's a very clear correspondence, but different things. 
what is the difference between saying and speaking, between Jacob and Israel, between house versus children or sons. So saying and speaking, we're going to talk about it at length in a minute, but we'll just say as, a, as an introduction that saying is considered uh, more casual and softer. Amira. Whereas Haggadah, speaking, is considered more direct, more demanding, and, and also sometimes more harsh. The world was created with Amirot. Amirot, sayings, ten utterances. The ten utterances are, are also called ten sayings. Uh, and the world is undemanding. The world is as it is. But when you're spoken to, again, the Hebrew word for being spoken to, which is le, to, to speak, lehagid, that's something that's more demanding and requires more of you. It, it doesn't just say things, you know, offhandedly, uh, just like the world exists in an undemanding way. Jacob and Israel. Jacob is, of course, uh, Jacob's given name. That's the name he grew up with. That's the name his parents gave him. That's the name he that he spent his childhood being referred to. Uh, that's the name that's familiar to him. That's the name that he was. He didn't work for it. Israel, on the other hand, is the name that he gained at a later age, and through combating the angel of his twin brother Esau. It's a name that was acquired through uh, a conflict. It's not something that's natural, that's simple, that has to do with his childhood memories. It's something that was gained at a later age and through strife. So, again, different. And of course, it's a higher name. It's a, it's a level that it doesn't have to do with this reality. It has to do with connecting to something transcendent and higher, again, through conflict. And the final difference is house of Jacob versus sons or children. Well, the usual, the usual translation is children, but the literal meaning is sons of Israel. House is more feminine in nature. The image of a house is, is almost like the image of a big womb that encompasses you, that you grow up in, that you develop in. And whereas the word for children, which again, as I said, is sons, is more masculine in nature. So if you put all three elements together, what you get is that the first phrase has to do with something that's this worldly, right? It's Yaakov, like the, the name of, of, of Jacob that was given to him at birth. And it's Amira, again, has to do with the creation of the world as it is in an undemanding way. And it has to do with the house of Jacob. It's something... Hamish, it's more feminine, uh, motherly, and and this is the, so. All these are the connotations of the first verse. It's a, it's a soft saying. It's addressed to the house of Jacob again, the name that has to do with natural living as opposed to acquiring something by conflict. And the second phrase is more masculine in nature and has to do with connecting to something that doesn't come naturally, or doesn't flow, it's acquired through um, uh, uh, working and, and conflict and, um, what's the word, opposition. And, right, it's Israel was, is the higher name, the name that is more transcendent has to do with conflict, and also speaking is harsher than uh, saying, and also, sons is, of course, more masculine than house. All this uh, typology of masculine and feminine is something many modern people have a hard time with because they feel that uh, they don't like stereotypes and they don't like stereotyping men and women into these simple categories. But we need to realize something very important. It's something that we always come back to, but it's, you know, we always have some new people listening. Uh, and watching these classes, so it's important every once in a while to to remind us of this very basic uh, concept that uh, the idea of having these archetypal uh, typologies 
that characterize femininity and masculinity in such binary ways does not contradict in any way the complexity of men and women in the world. Men and women are complex beings, and we're inter-included with feminine and masculine elements. That is, every man and woman is a very complex creature with both feminine and masculine uh, aspects and elements. However, femininity and masculinity are simpler concepts, and they are more abstract and archetypal. And we can't understand ourselves as complex beings, as mosaics of masculine and feminine traits, without having archetypal concepts, the archetypal concepts of femininity and masculinity, which we do have to understand in a binary way. And when you look at it, not just in Judaism, but it's something cross-cultural, you see that femininity has to do with this world, as many nations refer to nature as feminine, like Mother Nature, and and the, the world, the earth, is, as being a, a great mother with a womb, and the more transcendent element that has to do with movement that goes from top-down, top-down processes versus bottom-up processes, this is more masculine in nature. So these archetypes are very, very deeply embedded in human culture, human civilization, human symbolism and symbology, and, and the Torah is no exception. In fact, the Torah is where we find the most, in a way, uh, concise or the deepest uh, set of images and concepts that help us understand these universal concepts. Uh, so, again, now we, we are standing now at the, the foothills of Mount Sinai, we have just arrived, we are about to receive the Torah, but the first thing that God says to Moses, as a sort of introduction, he says, so you shall say to the house of Jacob, feminine phrase, and so you shall speak to the sons of Israel, masculine phrase, and this is a preparation for receiving the Torah. No, not one word of actual Torah has yet been said, but before we can listen to the Torah, we need these two phrases sort of floating around. And indeed, the Midrashim, the homiletic uh, writings of the sages, have explained that these two verses, the two sorry, these two phrases, it's one verse, these two phrases uh, refer to women and men. That the first phrase talks about teaching Torah to women, and the second phrase talks about teaching Torah to men. So now this brings up many, many questions. But the first question it brings about, before we go into the difference between saying and speaking more closely and understanding exactly what it means, Amira versus Haggadah, saying versus speaking, we need to ask a more basic question, which is why does God tell Moses to address the women first? This is surprising, to say the least, in the context of the period of time in human history that the Torah was given. The period of time that the Torah was given, uh, men preceded women in almost every aspect of, of things. And we see this in the Torah and the Bible in biblical times, and not just biblical times, up until the 19th century, uh, and I would even say late 19th century, uh, the concept of equality, well, it started out in the 18th century, but really became a thing in the 19th century, uh, was, wasn't really heard of in most civilizations, and men preceded women in almost everything. And in most places in the Torah, you see men preceding women. But here, uh, women precede men. So, by the way, just the fact that there's a distinction made between how Moses should speak to women versus how he should speak to men isn't an obvious thing in itself. Just if you go back just to the previous verse, just before the verse that we're talking about, the second verse of the Parsha, it says that the people of Israel uh, camped before Mount Sinai, and the verb used for camping, vayichan, is in the singular. In, in Hebrew, you differentiate between singular and plural in the, you, when you use the verb uh, to camp. So they camped, it doesn't say they camped, it say something like he camped. 
it's singular. So, and the and the sages say that the whole people became unified just before receiving the Torah. They were one people with one heart. They were all just one, and there was this amazing unity in the Jewish people as they camped before Mount Sinai in preparation for receiving the Torah. So it's all they're all together, and there's no differences. And then the next verse, we go into the differences, and we go into the difference between men and women. It's a very crucial difference. It's a very fundamental difference, and it's two forms of speaking, and it's two. They have to do with two names of Jacob, Jacob and Israel, and it's very, very fundamental. So just the difference is a big thing. But the, again, the question we want to pose now is how come the women precede the men? And of course, this question has troubled many uh, interpreters. And when you open the, the most basic homiletic uh, book, which is Midrash Rabbah, then you see that the, the, the question is posed and three answers are given. And the, the three answers are very interesting. The three answers are very, very interesting. We want to put them all together, and 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 this will help us go deeper into this idea. The first answer is: women have more alacrity. Alacrity is quickness. They're quicker to respond and to implement. And there's something slower about men in the way they move from understanding something or hearing something to actually doing it, actualizing it. So women have more alacrity. They're quicker to respond and apply. First answer. Very interesting answer. Second answer. The women are in charge of educating the children more than the men. And since education is so, so central to Judaism and to Torah learning, so the, once the Torah is given, even before the Torah is given, it's extremely important to put the educators of, of and we're talking about the educators of the youngest age, uh, first, because they're the ones that are going to immediately apply this. And this has to do with the first answer, the alacrity one. They're going to hear things, and immediately they're going to teach their children, and, and they're also more in charge of the children. So that's the second answer. Third answer is, uh, God is learning from his mistakes, so to speak, and when he created the world, he first gave the commandments of the not to eat from the forbidden tree, first to Adam and then to Eve, and it didn't work out so well. So, uh, he's learning from his mistakes, again, so to speak, and now he decided it's best that I teach the, the, the women first, and then uh, they're not going to go and, 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 you know, maybe speak to some snake And in the time being, right? We need to, to do it as soon as possible. If you put it together, all these answers, you get something very, very interesting. The alacrity one, right? In Hebrew, the term is rizut, it's almost like saying that women are rest, restless. They're constantly on the move. They're not going to stay put. If you connect this to the third reason of what happened in the, the creation of the world, is that you, you can almost put it in this sense. You can say, just as nature abhors a physical vacuum, right? F very basic physics tenet, that nature abhors a vacuum in a physical sense, you can say that women abhor a spiritual vacuum. And it has to do with the alacrity. They're not going to stay put. And if they don't fill the vacuum, the void, with one thing, they'll go and fill it with something else because they can't stand not having the vacuum filled with spiritual, meaningful content. There's something very interesting in the history of modern Judaism. In the his history of modern Judaism, when the, the movement of Haskalah, which is the Jewish version of the Enlightenment, came about in the 18th century, and, Jew and Jews were invited to the universities, right? The emancipation took place, and Jews were given equal rights in Europe, and they were invited to the universities, and the men didn't go so much because they had their hands full with Torah, their hands and their heads, 
full with Torah. But the women who didn't study Torah at that time, uh, and again, they were more, they were quicker to respond, and they were quick to be filled with another content. They did go to the universities, and what happened was that suddenly you had this very large gap between men and women, with women getting a wider secular education, and which worked. As it, as, it, as it usually does for both men and women, but it started with the women, to distance them from Torah. In a way, secular education is a bit like the snake in the Garden of Eden. A secular education can be used for holiness. It can be used in a way that goes, absolutely connects and strengthens Torah and faith and observance. But the way it's taught in the academic world, especially when you're talking about 18th, 18th and 19th centuries, and and same goes uh, in, in many, many cases in our generation, uh, it's, um, it, it doesn't work that way. It distances you from, uh, from faith and from observance. And that's what happened to the women. The Jewish response was that women need, need to be taught Torah as soon as possible. And the situation in which women don't study Torah has to change because they're not staying put and they're going and learning secular to uh, uh, topics and, and, and they're very good at it. And, and what happens is that you have this rift within Judaism between men and women. And this is something very similar to what's happening here. The Torah is telling us this, this idea long before the movement of Haskalah, of enlightenment, came, came into the world, and long before the, the modern age came into the world, it's telling us the women need to be taught Torah, and the women need to be taught Torah first. And that's because there's something about them that the, there's no disconnection between theory and practical applying. And they, when they understand something, they'll apply it immediately. And if they don't study Torah, they'll go and study something else. They'll go and study something that is that comes spiritually, so to speak, from the snake. Again, the snake here symbolizing something that could be very, very clever and very deep, but it's disconnected, disconnected and disconnects you from your faith in God. So... And, and of course, there's also the second reason in, in, in the middle here, which is that they're going to, this has a far-reaching uh, implication regarding future generations, because it's the women giving birth to, new, to the next generation and teaching the next generation. So that's the first thing we, we have here, is that we see that the, there is a difference between Torah learning for women and Torah learning for men, which is stated as an introduction to receiving the Torah, that there is a difference, different form of speech, different form of, of, uh, of, of character to men and women and the way they learn Torah, and that there's, in, a, in an interesting way, women precede the men. Now, let's go into the, these two uh, verbs that we're using, to say versus to speak, Amira versus Haggadah. In the same Midrash, uh, two explanations are given as to what is the difference between these two forms of speaking. So the first difference is, uh, it says, uh, no, sorry, the fifth Midrash, the Midrash Rabbah, gives one difference, and then there's another Midrash called Mechilta, which has the second difference. So the first difference is, that Amira saying, which is the, the way the women were taught, has to do with Rashi Dvarim. Rashi Dvarim means something like the headlines, or literally it means the heads of things. This usually means general topics, uh, general ideas, as opposed to going into the details. And the Haggadah, the second form of speaking, which goes to the men, is dikdukei dvarim, which is the fine details, the exact details, all the minutia, all the all the, the little, all the little details and differences. And the the way the midrash says it, it says that you shall 
say to the women the heads of things or the general concepts which they can hear. That's how the Midrash says that they that the women can hear. And the men were going to tell them the dikdukeit varim, the, the little details that they can hear. Right? This is an important phrase to to understand that 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 uh, the midrash says you need to tell the women the broad concept which they can hear and you can t- you should tell the men the little details that they can hear second difference appears in in the other midrash in the mechilta and we've said this before which is that amira saying to the women is soft spoken and the hagada is harsh that's the 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 other difference that's uh, pointed out to. So let's start with this weird uh, phrase, heads of things, uh, general concepts, broad concepts, which in Hebrew is rashay dvarim, heads of things. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe, in a very famous talk that he gave on this parsha and on this verse, he said, really, this term, which is what the women were taught, you can understand it in two polar opposite ways, completely different. One of them is appears to be a lower interpretation, and the other one is a very high interpretation. And the same concept, same phrase in Hebrew, you can understand it in two absolutely distinct ways. The first is that this is a simplified version of the of Torah ideas. Rashid Varim means you need to simply down, uh, you need to shorten things, and you, you need to pack them into small capsules, small concepts. And why? Because women who don't learn Torah, they can't take the bigger concepts with all their details. So you need to simply down, and especially, you need to bring it down to the bottom line. The bottom line is the application of it. What is the halacha, the Jewish law? Don't tell me all the ideas and all the opinions, and, and he said that, and he said that, and the, because it's too theoretical. Just give me the bottom line. What do I have to do? What is the halacha that I have to perform? Even in the time that women didn't study Torah, they were absolutely obligated to learn the practical laws of Judaism, because they need to live by, just as the men do. And in some cases, some cases, there are things they take care of that the men don't take care of. So, obviously, they had to know the practical law. And so, Rashid Varim, according to the first interpretation, is giving them the bottom line, the practical application. Tell me what I need to do, and that, that's what I need to hear. That's the first interpretation of what is Second interpretation, totally, totally opposite pole of the spectrum. Here, Rashid Varim is, as, as the literal meaning of the phrase is, the heads of things, not the feet of things, not what they are at the bottom line. It's not the bottom line, it's the headline. The headline is the deep, broad, basic root concepts from which all the details emerge. So it's the exact opposite. It's not the bottom line, it's the headline. The headline, in Hebrew, headline is koteret. It comes from the verb, from the root, keter, which means crown. The headline is like the crown of the article or of the book. The headline, the title, is like the crown. It tells you the deepest things, in a way. If you if you delve delve into the titles of books, good books with good titles, their titles say everything. And the same goes here that the headline, the heads of things, is the deepest, broadest, highest concepts from which all the details emerge and diverge. So if it's the bottom line, it's you have all the details, and the details all converge into something practical that this is what you need to do. But if it's the headlines, it's not all the details converging, it's all the details diverging, emerging from this headline. 
It's the gist of the matter. It's the, the deep spiritual concept that's be above and beyond all the details of a Torah text. Now, when you, once you have uh, this difference between uh, saying and speaking, right? Because the difference was heads of things versus details. You have these two ways of understanding this. We can also now have two understandings of what does it mean that the sayings were soft-spoken. If we go with the heads of things being, you know, simpled-down ideas, that you you boil it down to the practical line, then soft-spoken, and that's the more obvious reading, that in most generations that's how they understood it. Soft-spoken means don't, um, you know, don't demand too much. You know, say it softly because women are, are weaker and they only need to hear the bottom line and you should be tender with them and you should tell them the idea and you should say it in a kind and, and in a way that, because women are, are softer and they're kinder and they're not as tough as men. So you don't, you know, if you go to a yeshiva, of men, and you see them shouting and talking and arguing and yelling at one each other, that's a masculine form of learning. But the women, you need to have the simple ideas, you need to say it in a softer way, because women are, it's not for them to go into these theoretical arguments shouting at each other. It's not uh, proper. However, if you go with the second understanding of what a saying is, what the heads of things is, that it's the headline, not the bottom line, then the soft-spoken concept becomes something very different. The soft-spoken is, is, goes along with the idea that the deep secrets of the Torah cannot be shouted. They can only be whispered. It's a totally different thing. If you're talking about women as being more tender and not as educated and more homely and more you know, down to earth and more earthbound. And as women were throughout most of history that they were in the homes and taking care of the children and they didn't, you know, trouble themselves with all these complicated Torah ideas, then the the saying is about give them the bottom line and the soft-spoken means speak tenderly because she, she she's different from you and she's, you know, she it's not for her to have all these loud... Uh, you know, style of of of, uh, of learning and arguing. But if we're talking about the headlines and the deep concepts, and this is the feminine form of Torah study, then the soft-spoken idea becomes something very different. It's like, you know, the Arizal, the, the, the greatest Kabbalist, he wrote three songs that we sing on Shabbos. And the middle one, the one that we that we sing in the second meal of Shabbat, which is called Asadeli Seudat, I shall prepare the meal. It's all in Aramaic, that very reminiscent of the Zohar type of uh, of uh, Aramaic. There's a, an expression there, Yachazeilan Sitrei de Itamar Bilchisha. He, meaning God, shall show us his secrets that are only told in whispers. If you take a secret, a deep concept in the, in the Torah, and you shout it, it doesn't come across. You can take, you can read the part of the Zohar, and you can shout it. It's, it's the easiest thing to do, open the Zohar and shout it out. But the, the deep meaning of it doesn't transfer, it doesn't come across. It only comes across if you say it soft-spokenly, if you whisper it. Only then do you understand how much you don't understand it. And only then do you understand that you need to soften your own heart in order to truly appreciate the deep meaning of this. So this is a very so what we have here, if you put it all together, really what you have here is you get now three levels of the Torah. In the middle, you have the masculine level. The masculine level has to do with harsh speech, which is the speech 
that you see in the yeshiva students arguing loudly, learning all the details of the Torah. This is the main, most dominant bulk of Torah study in the world. Most Torah studies conducted by men in yeshivas, sitting there all day, shouting at one another, and trying to, you know, you know, hammer out the meaning of the Torah in a very loud and harsh way. This is, this is the middle level. In the bottom level, you have the bottom line, which is more feminine in, in nature, in the sense that it, go, it, it takes all these argumentations and it, and it wants to apply them into reality. And in here, you have to soften things up a bit, and you have to approach reality in a kinder, more mellow, more gentle way. You can't take all these Torah ideas that you hammer out in argumentations and, you know, you know, hit reality with it on the head. When you go down to reality, this is where women become the experts, and they know how to transmit... The, all these ideas into practicality, bring it down to actual people, actual situations, particular instances, and people and situations that, that don't necessarily you know, agree with you or don't necessarily accept the Torah or don't necessarily accept the truth of it. And you need to soften your voice and, and soften your behavior. So we have, again, the, the, the middle level is masculine, and then below it is a feminine level of the Torah that has to do with applying the Torah in this world. But then you also have a third level, the highest level, which is also feminine in nature. right? It's feminine, masculine, feminine, going from the top down or the bottom up. And the highest level is also feminine, and this is the level of the esoteric, the Pnimiyuta Torah, the inner dimension of the Torah, that is not often or almost never studied in regular yeshivas. And that also has to do with soft-spoken, feminine in nature kind of study, but not because you need to soften things down as you're going from Torah learning to applying things in, in the real world. It's, it's a different kind of softening. It's a softening of your ear and your heart and your mind to hearing the subtle concepts of the inner dimension of the Torah. So the idea here is that both the highest level and the lowest level are feminine in nature. Femininity knows how to translate the Torah from theory to practice, and femininity also understands how to renew the Torah with new deep, inner Torah concepts that come from the highest level of the Torah. It's the headline that's feminine, it's the bottom line that's feminine, and in the middle you have the regular masculine type speech. So that's a very deep understanding, very interesting understanding of how the Torah has both a masculine and a feminine aspect, but it's a very complex model in the sense that there are two feminine levels to the Torah, the level of applying and the level of the inner dimension of the Torah, and masculinity is somewhere in between. And of course, men and women need each other in order to, to you know, bridge and connect all these three levels to have them together. And you see something about masculine Torah, or, or people who study Torah only in a masculine way, is that they're very good with learning, let's say, the Gemara, and going into all the ideas and the arguments and all the different sides, they're not so good in opening up their hearts to the inner dimension of the Torah and its concepts, because it's a different form of study. It's, it has to do with whispering and learning subtle, deep, hidden ideas. And they're not so good in translating all these the way they learn Torah into simple, human, everyday situations in which sometimes uh, requires, you know, refining their attributes in a way that they're too masculine for that. 
And you do see women very much connected to these two levels of, of being very much, you know, tuned into the way people behave in this world, not necessarily in, the, in some abstract yeshiva, you know, Torah learning, uh, you know, space, mind, mind space, but they're very good in, in getting people, getting situations, and, and, you know, moving around the world in a good way. And they're also very tuned to the deep, the deep Torah concepts that have to do with the inner dimension of the Torah, but not so much to the level that, that's in the middle, which is the level of, of very rationally and very, you know, with all, going into all the details, opening all the verses and all the sources and comparing them and making sure it works properly and, and, and there's no contradictions and, and, you know, taking all the sources and comparing them. But we do need all levels. Now, I want to go back to the phrase that I used before, which is that the Midrash Rabbah says, uh, uh, say to the women, the heads of things, that they can hear, and say to the men, the details of things that they can hear. This also we can now read in two ways. The classical, traditional way usually heard this as saying the following. The women, they can't take all the details. They can't hear it. They can only hear the general concepts. So tell the women, say to the women, Emor lebet Yaakov, Emor l'anashim, just the, the bottom line, just the basic concepts, uh, that they can hear, because that's the only thing they can hear. But the men, you can tell them the details, because they can take they, they can take that too. And that assumes that the men can understand both the uh, general concepts, the bottom line, and the details. But the women can only understand the, the general ideas, not the details. But if you look closely at the way it's written in the Midrash, it doesn't say that women can hear less than the men, or that the men can hear both these elements, but the women just one of them. It says very, it's very, very symmetrical. It says, tell to the women, the Rashid Varim, the heads of things, that they can hear, and tell to the men the details of things that they can hear. And now you can, we can offer a different reading, and the different reading is, is just as you assumed that the women can't take the details, they, they don't have, you know, the, the, the time or the energy or the capacity to understand it, you can just say just as much. You can say that the men can't get the headlines that the women can. Because the way the Midrash phrases it is completely symmetrical. Tell to the women the Rashid Varim that they can hear and tell to the men the details of things that they can hear. Meaning, you can just as you before you read it, that the women can only take the, the, the general concepts, they can't take the details, but the men can take both. You can now flip the whole thing upside down and say, no, 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 it's the women who can get both, but the men can only get the details. Tell the men the details that they can hear, but they can't hear the headlines. Right, so this is very interesting. Now, of course, what we, now, we can, now that we have these two, these two readings, we can have the best third reading. And the best third reading is, both men and women can get both. Both of them have the capacity to understand the headlines and the details and the bottom lines, all of it, the Rashi Dvarim, the Dikduke Dvarim, the, the general concepts, the, 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 the details, they can all understand all of it. But they have a tendency or a, an affinity to hearing different aspects more than the other gender. That women are, are tuned to hearing, to getting the Rashid Varim in both senses of the word, right? Headlines and bottom lines, more than men. But the men are tuned to hearing the details of things more than the heads of things. So again, what we end up here is that we have a three-level model of how femininity and masculinity play out within the Torah. That in the middle, there's this masculine level, which is the main bulk 
of Torah study, which is studying Talmud and Halakha, and that goes into all the argumentations and all the details of Jewish law. And below, it, below that is a feminine level that has to do with the sense and sensibility of applying that to everyday situations which require a different kind of sensitivity than the one you, you, you are required to adopt in a yeshiva space. And there's also the highest level, which is also feminine, which has to do with the secrets the esoteric level, the deep inner dimension of the Torah, which again, which again requires a refining of the hearing and of the feeling and of opening up to the whispered element of the Torah. And also, by, it says, by the way, in the Talmud, that women tend to whisper or speak in a lower voice than men. And if a husband wants to speak to his wife, he should lower his voice and also... Uh, you know, lend his, his ear more closely to hear his wife's whispering, because it says the, the women, they don't shout. The men shout, so men are accustomed to speaking in a loud voice. But when, when a man is speaking to his wife, he needs to slow things down. And not slow things down, but he needs to, to speak in, on a quieter tone and move to a quieter tone of, of level. And this would connect him, according to what we just said, to both these levels, the level that's above the level of the man, of the masculine Torah, and that the level that's below the level of the masculine Torah, that connects it, grounds it in, in reality. Now all this connects to um, a very, very basic concept that I, I've, I've referred to in several classes, and some of you are for sure familiar with, which is the Kabbalistic idea of the rise of femininity throughout history. According to Kabbalah, there's a reason that the, the very concept of equal rights and equality for men and women uh, is appearing on the stage of history at such a later stage uh, in, in, in the history of civilization. It's not because, uh, it's not just because there was the patriarchy or there wasn't the technology to uh, enable women to have more time on their hands and all of this. It, all, all, all this is very much true. But it's, it's, uh, there's also a deeper, more, let's say, theological reason. And the deeper theological reason is that femininity is something that grows and evolves in a different pace than masculinity. That just like uh, in in the father and mother having a baby together, the part of the father ends very quickly in the beginning of the pregnancy, uh, but the mother has to work very hard for nine months, or her, it's something evolves within her for nine months. It's a more gradual process. So same goes for the appearance of the light of masculinity and the light of femininity in the world. The light of masculinity is appears earlier and, and in a fuller form. But the light of femininity is something that develops and grows and, and uh, blossoms in a more gradual way. But then, once it appears, rises above the masculine and is able to bestow upon the masculine wisdom, civilization, culture, way of thinking, totally new ideas and concepts and, and sensibilities. So what we see here is, some, is, is really a reflection of this in the model of the masculine and feminine within the Torah, that the, the, the lower two levels are, have been known throughout history. There has been the level of Torah study that was masculine, and the level of applying it to getting to the bottom line and applying it to reality, which was more feminine in nature. And that's how most generations have understood the verse that we're talking about this evening, about Emor Lebet Yaakov and V'taged Lebnei Israel. But as femininity rises, also the highest level of the Torah, the high feminine aspect of the Torah, which has to do with the esoteric level, the Pnimiyuta Torah, the inner dimension of the Torah, all that is now gradually appearing and coming to the 
fore of the stage, to the foreground, and is becoming something that is not, you know, just some thing that a few Kabbalists in some cave or in some room, you know, somewhere studied, becomes something that we're all exposed to and we all need to learn because the this is really the fullest version of the Torah. This is where the, the deep concepts are to be found. And we are a generation that we need, we have to have these deep concepts. And this is the only way we can understand the Torah. So as femininity rises, so the hidden level of the Torah, which is what Hasidut is all about, also rises. And then the third level, the highest level appears, and the, fem- and the feminine does stops being just a recipient of the masculine, it goes further up and becomes also a mashpia, a, an influencer, a teacher. And now it's not just men teaching the women, it's also the men, they need to learn from the women. And the masculine Torah needs to learn from the feminine Torah. So the idea we get from all of this is that Hasidut is a more feminine Torah than what Judaism has been accustomed to and has been learning and teaching throughout most of history. And the idea goes like this, and this is where we're going to to end. In the Garden of Eden, we we spoke about the Garden of Eden before. In the Garden of Eden, you had three, uh, um, what's the words? Uh, you know, people, when you, when you, people are doing a crime and they're working together, there's a word for that in English, I forget the words, and, you know, working together in a negative way. If you can write it down, it would be nice. And um, so they were, there were three uh Figures working together, three conspirators, it's not conspirators, I thought, but there's another with them, accomplices, exactly. There were three accomplices to the crime, and that was the snake, and Chava, Eve, and Adam. And the order was just like I said, it was the snake, he, he began things, and then it was Eve, and then it was Adam. So the idea is that the rectification of the primordial sin goes in the opposite direction. First, you need to rectify Adam, that is masculine thinking. And then you need to rectify Eve, which is feminine thinking. And then finally, the Mashiach will have to rectify the snake. Mashiach is gematria, has the same numerical value as the word nachash, which is snake in Hebrew, right? It's it's the first sinner and the final redeemer. And Mashiach will rectify the snake. So the idea is that throughout most of Jewish history, we've been working on the rectification of Adam the rectification of the masculine accomplice in the primordial sin. Adam was the last to sin, but the first to be punished and rectified. And the idea is that throughout most of Jewish history, Torah learning was very, very masculine in nature, and we only focused, or mostly focused, on the masculine aspect. Of course, there was the level of applying it to reality, but the human sensitivity aspect of it was not necessarily uh, in the foreground. And, and also that was just, you know, a way, a means of taking the masculine aspect of the Torah and applying it. It wasn't a goal in itself. It was just a means of, of, of how you implement it in the world. So the focus was on the masculine aspect of the Torah. But as, again, femininity rises and the inner dimension of the Torah rises, then the idea is that the Baal Shem Tov, founder of Hasidut, and Hasidut in general, is a transition from rectifying Adam to rectifying Chava, rectifying Eve. Rectifying Eve is adopting and developing and teaching in a feminine way. It has to do with opening up to the, to the deep secrets of the Torah. It has to do with moving towards a soft-spoken, whispering kind of study, although many Hasidim, you know, they also sing and dance, but when they, they teach Torah and they learn Torah, it's, there's always a slowing down and a mellowing of the voice, and it goes into deeper concepts. And in a way, it's a form of whisper. It's more soft-spoken because the ideas are more subtle. And this is the rectification of Chava. This is the 
opening up of the high feminine level and also taking that down into the level of the emotion. It's not just rational. It's both supra-rational and sub-rational. It has to do with the emotions. And taking all these Torah concepts and letting them, you know, enter the heart and seep into the heart. And there's something about, you know, the Musar tradition, which is the, the classical moral teachings of Judaism. They're very linear. They're very rational. They're very masculine in nature. They tell you this is the right way to behave. This is the wrong way to behave. And they're very clear-cut about it. They're very direct about it. But Hasidut understands that that's no way to talk to the heart because it's more feminine in nature. Even if the first generations, it was all just male Hasidim. But as the Hasidut evolves, Hasidut itself evolves, and the Hasidot become an integral part of Hasidut, not just the Hasidim, not just the male, it's, their, it's the Hasidot as well. And, and here, it's, the teaching is very different. It's, even, when, even, even in the time it was just the men, it, they, they didn't approach the heart in such a straightforward way. They would go in roundabout ways. They would sing, and they would tell stories, and they would talk, you know, regular casual talk, and they would talk to God in, a, in, in the spoken language, not in the holy language. And all kinds of ways, the stories, and the traveling, and the singing, and the dancing, and the farbrengens, it was all ways of getting to the heart in a way that the heart can identify with. You don't preach to the heart in some rational way, and you tell the heart that this is the right way to go and the bad and the wrong way to go because that closes the heart up. This is masculine thinking. Chasidut opened up the feminine aspect of the Torah and the feminine way of teaching the Torah. So, so Chasidut is the rectification of Chava of Eve, and and this is why for women they find Chasidut far more. Uh, intuitive than m- many men do, and for and it's like first nature for them. Whereas for many men, it's second nature to learn Hasidut and to understand Hasidut, and they need to learn from their wives and sisters, and and this, of course, will lead the way to the final stage, which is the m- m- the Torah Mashiach, the Torah of Mashiach that will go down and rectify the the snake, the snake being the ultimate core of, of objection to faith and connection to God that's embedded in reality. And you can't get to rectifying this really, the, this tough and dark places that shun God and shun the Torah without going through the feminine aspect of the Torah and feminine learning. So this is, the, this is our teaching for, for this week, is we took this third verse from the parasha that, has, that is the introduction to, to receiving the Torah. We want to receive the Torah every year and every day anew. We want to hear the Torah as if it was given today. This, in fact, the word today uh, appears in the very first verse of the of the parasha. We're talking about that each day we should experience the Torah as if it's given to us right now. It needs to be, it's not some historical event in the far past, it's happening now. But in order to receive the Torah, we need to fully appreciate the difference between the masculine and the feminine. And we should also appreciate the, the way in which in a very deep way, the feminine precedes the masculine. It's the saying to the house of Jacob that precedes the speaking to the sons of Israel. And, and in both senses of, of, uh, that we learn today, that it has to do with uh, developing our sensitivity to reality, to people around us, to situations, to this world, but also to the high, deep, um, spiritual concept of the inner dimension of the Torah. And, and this leads the way to properly learning and applying the masculine aspect of the Torah as well. So may we all merit to be, all of us, men and women, 
be connected to the masculine and the feminine aspects of the Torah, and that we should see how much both men and women and the masculine and feminine within men and women, they complement one another and they help one another achieve true completion and true wholeness. And may we should all receive the Torah anew today with this inner balance and harmony.